0: and thank you for joining us in this new edition of the AOP Educational Podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to have as a co-host for this podcast, my good friend, former classmate and colleague, Dr. Tom Weber. Tom, do you mind introducing yourself to our audience?
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Tom Weber. It is a pleasure to be joining Isabel on the AOP Podcast. Uh, I'm an oral facial pain dentist in the U.S. Air Force, currently stationed at Travis Air Force Base in Northern California, where I live with my wife and kids. And uh, it's a privilege and a joy to be uh, joining in this time.
0: Thank you, Tom, for being here with us today. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Charlie Carlson. And I believe that I speak for both of us when I say that it is a great honor to be interviewing Dr. Carlson since he has been one of our great mentors. Dr. Carlson, thank you so much for taking your time to answer our questions.
2: It's my pleasure to
1: be here this afternoon. So Charlie, one thing I'd love to hear about is is some of your background. So you are a psychologist professionally, uh, and you've had a lot to do over the years with oral patient pain. So, if you could kind of share with us a bit of your story of how you got into this niche. So, what led you to your professional life uh, as an academic psychologist? And maybe from there, sketch out how pain and specifically orofacial pain became such a major focus of your professional life.
2: Sure, (laughs) be happy to. Um, As an undergraduate, I did not know what major would work for me. So as when I was in my uh, first semester of my junior year in college, I realized that I needed to declare a major in order to get a degree in four years. I went through the college catalog, looked at every major and decided that um, I could get a degree in chemistry in four years. And so I chose to, to get a degree in chemistry Uh, from South Dakota State University. The day I was graduated, I uh, had to go on active duty in the United States Army. And one of the benefits for me of serving on active duty in the Army was discovering that what I really wanted to do was to be a teacher. And I wanted to have a content area to teach. And my best friend was a clinical psychologist who seemed to me to be really smart and wise. And I said, you know, I think that's a degree I could pursue. So I uh, spent time studying to take uh, an examination uh, to score well enough that I could convince people I knew something about psychology, even though I had a degree in chemistry. I ended up going to graduate school in clinical psychology at Vanderbilt University. I completed my training there and did a residency in applying psychology to physical disorders at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and I started a career as an academic psychologist interested in the question, how does a person learn to relax? And as a part of my early research, um, I uh, was taken under um, the wing of a, of a of a mentor who said, Charlie, what you need to do if you want to uh, be a success as an academic psychologist is you need to pick a disorder. And he didn't have any recommendation as to what, Disorder. he just said, you need to pick a disorder to study. And uh, when I moved to the University of Kentucky, I determined that I would take him at his uh, uh, word, and I decided to pick a disorder, and the question was, what disorder? And um, I realized there were two people at the University of Kentucky that might connect with some of the work I had done, and some of the research data I had collected, One of them was a guy by the name of Jeffrey Oakison, uh, who had been doing work with um, temporomandibular disorders. And the other was a guy by the name of James Anderson, who was working with um, hypertension. And I had some research data indicating that my uh, self-regulation strategies might be useful for helping people reduce their high blood pressure. Well, for whatever reason, I called uh, Dr. Jeff Oakison first. Um, he was in the middle of seeing a patient, but I can remember when he got on the phone and I was stunned that he would stop seeing a patient and get on the phone, but I've since come to appreciation that's the, um, that's the gentleman that Jeff Okison is. Um, when he, I explained to him what I was looking for, he said, come on over here, I've been waiting for you for seven years. And that was in uh, the fall of 1988. And uh, I went over the next week and met with him and uh, shared with him my interest in doing research with uh, his patient population. And he said, I think this would be a great match. Um, He fully supported me uh, coming over to the oral facial pain clinic and starting a research program. And during that first year, he kept saying, could you see my patients? And I kept saying, no, I need to do research so I can get tenure. But after I got my first data set collected, I finally said to, agreed that I would uh, see his patients under one condition. Um, he, I asked if he would let me start a training program for clinical psychologists, graduate students in oral facial pain. And he said, sure. Well, this is 31 years later. Um, I am the beneficiary of having had his support in that very first year to uh, gather uh, information from his patients. The second year, I started training students and seeing patients in the clinic. And I fell in love with applying psychology to the problems of oral facial pain. Um, I'm a scientist, so I spent a good bit of time doing uh, developing research protocols, um, writing papers, um, teaching my graduate students to do science um, in uh, oral facial pain, as well as to do clinical practice. And uh, literally day by day, I gained expertise in working in an interdisciplinary environment uh, with uh, both dentists and physical therapists and uh, physicians. And with each passing year, my uh, research portfolio expanded. I got more experience, I trained more students, and all of a sudden 32 years have gone by and I look back and um, I I really have defined myself as a clinical psychologist with a specialty in applying psychology to um, head and neck uh, pain disorders. Um, Along the way, I obtained board certification as a clinical health psychologist and have uh, trained both uh, clinical psychology graduate students, physical therapy graduate students, and you and your uh, colleagues as uh, uh, licensed dentists who have um, joined our program to develop expertise in treating oral facial pain conditions. So that's in a brief summary of my history. I'd like to think that I planned all of this out really carefully, but it turned out that I just kept uh, going through open doors, and one door led to the next, and it led to the next. Um, uh, uh, About four years after I started, um, I was asked to give a talk, um, in Chicago at the American Equilibration Society, and uh, you know, I I gave that talk, and interestingly enough, two things happened in that talk. One is they had um, a fire in the building, and so the fire alarm went off in the middle of the talk. And the second thing is all the lights went off, including my slides. <laughs> and I, uh, um, you know. You might think of that as an, as something that's uh, negative, but I sort of viewed it as a positive sign. You know, I lit a fire under the profession and I brought the house down with my talk. So, so um, that really has started um, one of the other aspects of my professional career, which has been to share um, my expertise and my research findings with the dental community at large.
1: Uh, Charlie, thanks so much for sharing that background. Uh, I I have definitely experienced that if anyone is good under pressure of slide problems, it's you, Dr. Carlson. Uh, You're good at situations, for sure, as I've witnessed firsthand. That's quite a flowering of professional activity that all blossomed from that question of how does one learn to relax? That doesn't sound like a lot of relaxation. That sounds like a lot of work. but it's, it's interesting that your career dovetailed so well from that question with oral facial pain. Uh, and I know we want to hear more about your research uh, that relates to relaxation and pain. Uh, just real quick, how many of the um, psychology grad students would you say have gone through the, the UK orofacial pain program at this point?
2: I counted them up uh, last December and I think I was at 43 or 44, somewhere in that range, plus or minus, you know, three or four. Um, But they're scattered all over the country. Um, And um, I'd say, uh, you know, there's a significant number who are very active seeing oral facial pain patients. Uh, They all have skills that if you called them up, they could see oral facial pain patients. So it's been very gratifying to have trained a cadre of uh, graduate students in clinical psychology um, to provide professional services uh, in a broad variety of venues.
0: So much of your teaching and research has focused on the concept of physical self-regulation. How would you define PSR and could you please outline for us what protocol have you used with your TMD patients?
2: Well, uh, there's a little context uh, before I, I, I answer the question about what it actually is um, and, and how we've uh, uh, gone about the the development of the validation of our approach. Um, when I first came to Jeff Okison, I was looking for a population that had uh, lots of extra muscle activity. Cause I had developed this stretch based relaxation protocol that had worked very nicely with persons that were uh, generally anxious. I had worked with people that had headache problems, neck pain problems. And I was looking for this population, this specific disorder that I talked about earlier of people that were characterized by excessive motor activity. And Jeff assured me that that's what his patient population consisted of. So I did my first study with him and I found out that, yes, there was some degree of um, motor activity that was greater than normal controls, but it wasn't a lot. And in fact, this was at a time when, um, uh, Dr. James Lund uh, from the University of Montreal was starting to talk about the, the, the problems with a muscle overactivation hypothesis, explaining how uh, these patients could be experiencing so much pain. Well, uh, when my first paper uh, uh, was completed, um, I had a lot of questions because uh, not only was, was the muscle activity not as great as I was anticipating, but there were some other characteristics of these patients that were of concern to me. One of them was, uh, we had a measure of uh, sympathetic nervous system activity, suggesting that these patients had excessive sympathetic tone. Uh, I also noticed that there were some issues related to their breathing. And really, what, what the early data suggested to me was, I don't know what's going on in these patients. And I am a, I'm a guy who is you know, you know, bent on understanding what are the foundational issues for patients. So we started a series of studies. We also got funded by the National Institute of uh, uh, Dental and Craniofacial Disorders to do a project where we looked at how, you know are there characteristics that differentiate pain patients from normal controls and it turned out that uh, the things that differentiated pain patients were was not muscle activity so much as there were changes in heart function and there were changes in respiration and resting diastolic blood pressure uh, And these changes suggested that there were some physiologic disturbances that were underlying the conditions that patients were presenting to us. Um, Simultaneously with that, I uh, met uh, a a dentist who came to study with us. His name was Dr. Peter Bertrand. And um, he also had the same questions that I had. And as we met together and talked about what was going on in this patient population, um, we realized how how little we knew, and we just spent a year uh, going into the basic science literature and trying to understand what are the the, the foundational principles that we need to regard and think about if we're gonna be effective with these patients. And so as a result of that, we identified, uh, based on our research, as, as well as the, 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 the literature, some foundational characteristics of oral facial pain patients that represented what we considered to be some, some serious disturbances. Obviously, it was the pain. The second was the fact that uh, these patients weren't sleeping well. Thirdly... These patients had uh, a problem with um, um, how they were breathing such that they were getting rid of too much carbon dioxide. They had low end tidal carbon dioxide levels and they had low diastolic blood pressures at rest. And at first, when we looked at the blood pressure data, um, my first thought was, Now my blood pressure cuff went bad because I just had assumed that when you have pain, you're going to have elevated blood pressure, both systolic and diastolic. We uh, did not find any elevations in systolic and we found this low level of resting diastolic blood pressure. And I was going to write it off as just, you know, um, bad equipment, but Peter Bertrand encouraged me to go talk to, uh, cardiologists um, at um, Army and Navy and Air Forces, um, combined services, um, medical university, uh, uh, Ushu's, Uniformed Services University in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, about my data. And we got with a group of cardiologists, and they said, oh yeah, that's what you'd expect. You'd expect resting diastolic blood pressures to drop in people that have a chronic stressor. And we thought, oh, isn't that interesting? So maybe my data do make sense after all. And uh, that really was a foundational moment for us to begin thinking, you know, a lot of these conditions represent physiologic disturbances. And And we knew what those were. And so we said, how would we go about changing the underlying physiology? And that's when we developed the idea of physical self-regulation that what we wanted to teach people uh, uh, was um, a set of specific skills that if they learned them and they practiced them they could change their physiologic status that in a nutshell is physical self-regulation training and these skills that we were seeking to train would build off of some of the research findings that we had and others had, that would suggest, well, what are the disturbances? And so we um, proceeded to outline a set of strategies that would help people uh, take literally control of what their physiologic status is for a moment in time. You know, it's, it's not continuous, but for a moment in time that you could alter underlying uh, physiologic parameters. So we started with um, uh, a, a simple exercise that monitored the position of your lips, your teeth, and your tongue. The whole focus of this approach was to teach people how to quiet their systems as best as possible. And one of the first challenges we had was that Uh, The position that we thought might be useful, where the tongue's resting on the floor of the mouth, the lips are apart, the teeth are apart, really created controversy that I was not expecting. I remember one of the first groups of dentists that I shared this strategy with, I mean, you could hear the collective air suck in, (laughs) the hands shot up, and people said, you know, that's not right. You know, the rest position of the tongue is on the, on the soft palate with slight pressure. And I remember thinking to myself, seriously? Um, well, uh, I, I'm a scientist, so I took the feedback. We came back to the lab. We, we did a study looking at, okay, so what happens with muscle activity in masseter and temporalis regions and superhyoid regions? if the tongue is resting on the floor or the tongue's on the roof of the mouth, what do the data show? And our data suggested that if you want to keep the muscle activity, uh, more quiet than otherwise, you want to let the tongue rest on the floor of the mouth. Um, I thought that would settle the issue. Nope. Um, uh, it did not. In fact, it created more controversy. We basically were, uh, told nah, you know, you know you're, you're, you're wrong, your flawed methodology. So we went back to the lab, added some more dependent measures, clarified our instructions, and we got the same findings, except we added one more and we discovered that when you put the tongue on the roof of the mouth, you actually change a cardiovascular uh, domain. And in particular, you changed your heart rate variability index. And we have come to find out that that's a pretty important change, we believe. Uh, And uh, we've seen it in other data suggesting that one of the foundational physiologic markers for this population is altered um, heart rate variability. Um, And in particular, we realized that one of the central problems was your heart rate variability is lower when you're in this patient population than normals, which turns out is is to be expected because uh, pain is a sympathetic driver. You drive sympathetic tone, you're going to decrease your heart rate variability. So we discovered that you know the story um, makes sense when you start putting all the pieces together, and uh, that our research over the course of 30 years has given us a coherent picture of the first thing that a patient ought to do is learn to monitor what your lips, teeth, and tongue are doing. It, we also add uh, a strategy for monitoring what your head is doing in relationship to the rest of your body. One of the uh, dental residents that joined us for a period of time was very interested in uh, the question of patient head position. and uh, We published a paper demonstrating that on average, Patients carry their heads more forward of their bodies than do normal controls. And if you're carrying a 10 to 12 pound weight forward of your body, it's not at all surprising that uh, neck muscles uh, will report fatigue. And if the fatigue is not addressed, that can progress to pain. And not only pain in the, the actual site, but it can uh, create referred pain in the face area. So we believe it was very important to develop a strategy to monitor what your head was doing and be able to restore uh, function and blood flow in a systematic way. We added to that an exercise for the upper uh, uh, cervical paraspinals and upper trapezius muscles. And then we uh, introduced people to a strategy to deeply quiet themselves uh, through relaxation. Um, I'm sorry to say we didn't use the stretch-based relaxation that I was hoping to build my career on, but it took too long. And our uh, oral facial pain patients uh, needed a strategy that would work much more rapidly. And we developed a strategy that teaches people how to relax based on just assuming relaxed positions that have been demonstrated by research to quiet uh, people on average. Uh, those four skills served as the initial foundation of physical self regulation. But we also then added a couple of other pieces. One piece was our fluid management strategy, where we encourage people to uh, drink plenty of fluids and use the color of uh, the urine to be a guide for how much fluid you need. Uh, if the urine is dark and concentrated, you push more fluids. And that actually came from our finding of low diastolic blood pressure. Um, We asked the question, well, if that's the problem and you're getting uh, cooling in the capillary beds, how could you change that? And we thought, well, let's let's increase fluid volume. And that was our strategy for doing so. Uh, We also think it's important that regular physical activity become a part of a a person's life. And we encouraged what we call a gentle walking program and uh, the, we wanted people to use particularly the relaxation strategy to help uh, with sleep onset. Uh, and then we wanted to teach people a strategy for how they breathe that could help uh, reduce their sympathetic tone and improve parasympathetic function. And so we have a, a protocol for teaching people how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, We sequenced all of this in in two sessions. Uh, We found that to teach diaphragmatic breathing was way more complicated than we first thought. So I like the expression, easy does it. And we decided that if we did two sessions where we taught the foundational skills of relaxation and monitoring and using fluids and physical activity in one 50-minute session... Then we gave patients two weeks to practice those skills. And then when they come back two weeks later, we then teach them the diaphragmatic breathing protocol. It makes the training uh, less frustrating for the patient and it uh, goes much better uh, from a teaching point of view. So we developed this protocol that has two 50-minute training sessions to teach people these foundational skills. And that's what we call PSR or physical self-regulation.
1: So Dr. Carlson, can you share with us what F is there in support of PSR in management of pain and dysfunction, such as we see with temporomandibular disorders, for example, you are a man of data and a man of science. What, what data is there?
2: Well, that's a great question and it's a fair question. So uh, I think that the gold standard for um, the effectiveness of any intervention uh, is a randomized controlled clinical trial. So um, I, uh, along with uh, uh, Peter Bertrand and Dale Ehrlich, uh, developed a a randomized clinical trial protocol uh, to evaluate uh, using physical self-regulation uh with a standard dental care protocol Uh, and the standard standard dental care involved education and a flat plane occlusal appliance Uh, we conducted the project at the uh, uh naval postgraduate dental school and the national naval hospital at bethesda maryland um uh and we had a protocol where a person who was not aware of the condition to whom the patients would be assigned did the evaluations, both pre and post. Uh, we had dentists delivering the care, um, and um, I monitored the, um, the, the 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 whole process with data collection and also uh, did the analyses and the ultimate write-up. So we did a randomized controlled clinical trial, and the results indicated that immediately after treatment, uh, there was no difference in uh, outcomes between standard dental care and the physical self-regulation protocol. Both groups reduced patients' pain and dysfunction. Six months later, we found that the PSR group was significantly better on Um, um, multiple measures than the standard dental care group. Um, So that's the primary data that we have used to say that um, this approach works. Uh, uh, I've been waiting for another group to come along and say, hey, let's check this out. Um, um, But uh, that has not happened so far to my knowledge. Now, we also have um accumulated a, a record of uh clinical outcomes over uh you know the years uh, those don't constitute a gold standard uh, but they do provide us with information about the effectiveness of the protocol on a day-to-day basis probably the thing that um i take uh, the most encouragement from is that uh, when I teach uh, either our graduate students or our graduate dentists, the physical self-regulation protocol, they then take that protocol to a patient. And what I've seen again and again over the years is um, the effectiveness of the skills over and above the talents of the providers that these foundational skills are really focused at changing underlying physiology. And when underlying physiology changes, people experience changes in their physical condition. And that's been our our thrust, that's been our focus, that's been our intent. uh, but i'm a scientist if somebody were to come along and and do a randomized controlled trial with psr and said uh, um, you know this is not effective um, i'd be the first to change
1: so given that background of data that shows efficacy for psr over and above splint therapy uh, and also the idea of changing our underlying physiology if we think about oral facial pain conditions, you know, there's kind of a whole family of conditions or categories that fall under that umbrella of oral facial pain, right? We think of, you know, the classic temporal mandibular disorders, both joint and muscle disorders, there are headaches, there are neuropathic pain conditions. All of these are oral facial pains. And a lot of the dentists listening to this podcast are going to be dealing with various, you know, <clears throat> conditions from that family. Um, does PSR, as far as we can tell lend itself or, 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 or should I say the physiologic changes that PSR helps induce are those, are certain pain conditions more amenable to treatment with PSR than others? What can we tell, uh, from, from your experience and from the data about that?
2: Well, the data were done on a population of people who met very clear research diagnostic criteria for primarily um, masticatory muscle pain problems. So our our data really uh, support using this approach with that particular population. I will say that uh, our PSR approach has been extended to a variety of other oral facial pain conditions. Uh, uh, joint conditions, neuropathic pain conditions, but we don't have specific clinical trial data indicating that for for those populations, we have reliable outcomes. Uh, So uh, another way to think about this is that whenever there is a a, a patient who presents, who has... uh, dysregulation uh, where uh, the sympathetic tone has been uh, up for a significant period of time. Uh, learning a set of skills to address that dysregulation in the service of increasing parasympathetic control, to me, makes the, makes very good sense. And this would be a place where physical self-regulation would have
0: uh, uh
2: it's a very appropriate place.
0: Dr. Carlson, is the decision to initiate PSR therapy more a function of the patient specific factors or is it a specific of the orofacial pain condition?
2: That's a great question, Isabel. Um, I think first of all, uh, when you do the assessment, one of the keys for PSR to be indicated is that you have a clear sense that there are some uh, dysregulated uh, behaviors going on. And whenever I monitor a patient, either when I'm doing the interview or I'm watching a, a dentist do the interview or I'm watching a graduate student do the interview, I look for indices of dysregulated behavior. What do I look for? I look for parafunctional activities uh, that are easily um, uh, attract. And I watch for how people compress their lips. I watch for movement of the jaw muscles. I also watch how they breathe. And when I see um the possibility that there's dysregulation, I start thinking um maybe these self-regulation skills would be appropriate for the patient. Um, uh, that's very important to me. I also listen to the history and if I hear the issues that suggest that um, over the course of the day, uh, pain levels change for the worse, that's another indication that doing some skills training might be very, very useful for that patient to help change the trajectory over the course of the day there are other things that i look at but but those are two that quickly come to my mind to suggest that there may be uh, an appropriate place for physical self-regulation training in a particular patient um, when i very first began using psr in the clinic um, i very carefully made sure that we were primarily working with um, muscle pain issues. But as we've gone along, I've uh, come to appreciate that these these foundational skills can have application with other pain conditions that we typically see. Um, the challenge is uh, um, I've been thinking and trying to predict, okay, so who are the people that this is going to work with? And I haven't been able to come up with a scheme uh, to uh, accurately make that prediction other than teaching them the skills and seeing if it makes a difference. And of course, when we take that approach, we um, always approach it with our patients with very clear, informed consent. That um, we make no guarantees, uh, we do have a foundational. Principle that we insist that patients follow, and that is we uh, want them to do nothing that would increase their sense of discomfort. Um, we are looking to to help people maximize parasympathetic function, and creating more pain is not in our best interests. Um, so uh, we have uh, tried to be cautious. We've tried to be optimistic, but not overly so.
0: And who should be performing this PSR training? Uh, can a dentist learn it? And, and how could a dentist learn the skills?
2: The answer to the last part of your question is, dentists can absolutely learn the, this set of skills. Um, they're well-suited uh, to introducing patients to these foundational concepts. Um, when a dentist uses this set of procedures, they can very quickly transition the patient into a training mode without having to pause, bring another person into the picture. Uh, Dental hygienists are ideal people who could teach these skills. Um, Nurses could teach these skills. Physical therapists could teach these skills. And psychologists could teach these skills. Um, I think one of the features that uh, my own profession of clinical psychology brings to the table is that. Uh, we have uh, skills in behavior change that can help uh, make behavior change more efficient and uh, uh, less costly to the patient, both in terms of time invested as well as money spent, um, uh, you, know, you know, seeking professional help. Uh, and, When uh, people who are trained in in behavioral change uh, get involved, uh, they can make the process uh, more efficient. Not necessarily the case, uh, but um, by training, they do have uh, that special set of skills. Ultimately, what we're about with physical self-regulation is asking people to change. And change is not an easy process for anybody let alone people that are already um, in a state of uh, frustration, uh, anxiety, concern, and high pain. Um, it, it, um, I use the expression, everybody wants to grow and nobody wants to change. Um, and uh, that's what I've come to appreciate is true for me. It's also true for Most, if not all, of the patients I've seen over the last 32 years uh, in uh, all facial pain practice. So uh, the person who can deliver these skills is a person who has the capacity to connect with patients empathically, has the capacity to introduce some fairly complex skills in a straightforward, relaxed manner, and is not afraid to give corrective feedback. Um, and I've uh, taught literally hundreds of people how to, to introduce physical self-regulation. And you don't need a particular degree uh, to be able to make it work
1: well. I'm very relieved to hear that the dentists can do this since I, I do use uh, PSR, Uh, principles in my own practice so I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm allowed to do that (laughs) well
2: not only are you allowed I encourage uh, this should be a a standard part of uh, a a dentist's armamentarium if you are working with people who have trigeminally mediated pain conditions
1: Uh, so it's part of that um, empowerment of dentists to use that skill set. You mentioned already, Charlie, that the challenge of behavioral change changes is, is hard for us humans, right? And, right? and that thing of yours, you know, everybody wants to grow. Nobody wants to change yeah, that. That is a Dr. Carlson saying that is burned into my brain. And I've quoted you on that many times. So you have been quoted in Northern California and, and surely other settings too. Uh, but, but given the challenge of behavioral change, What are some of the specific challenges that you've encountered as you've taught PSR skills to patients and share with us, if you could, some ways that you've addressed some of those challenges.
2: One of the first challenges that I've encountered is patients remembering what we've taught them. Uh, As I said, we do an initial 50 minute session and uh, that. there's a lot of information in those 50 minutes. So there are two aspects of the patient memory. One, what am I supposed to do? And we've addressed that with a handout that uh, specifies very clearly, here is what you need to do, and also provides a rationale or the why. The second thing is helping patients remember to do it periodically. What we're introducing people to is a strategy where they can voluntarily lower their levels of activation throughout the day. And a lot of us have uh, a lifestyle where once we get engaged, it's very hard to self monitor what's going on. And so we teach people strategies for reminding themselves, to do these skills uh, throughout the day. Just the other day, I I had a patient who described the strategy that has worked well. And this has worked well for many patients. And that is um, using stickers um, and putting stickers in various uh, places in your uh, environment, both at work and at home. I've had patients use the the bright yellow fluorescent stickers. Um, They put it on their doorknobs, they put it on the refrigerator, they put it on their cell phone, uh, they put it on the dashboard of their car. Um, But reminding uh, oneself to do these skills is very important. I use two myself, one is doorknobs, Uh, If I'm uh, needing to use these skills, because I've had a particularly challenging day, when I reach out to a doorknob, I think, okay, relax my lips, teeth, and tongue. Check my head position. Check my shoulders. Take a couple of nice, relaxed, uh, diaphragmatic breaths. Um, The second strategy I use is the ringer on my cell phone. Uh, if I'm having a particular stressful period, I never answer the cell phone on the first ring. I let it ring. And I say to myself, huh, somebody's got a problem and they're reaching out to me. Okay? Um, I need to be on my best. So I do a, a nice, relaxed, diaphragmatic breath on the second ring. On the third ring, I will pick up the phone and answer it. And I'm the nicest guy on that third ring, um, and I I use the phone as a way to remind myself to do those things that I am, have asked patients to do, and they also work for me. Um, one of again, one of the principles I use with students, and um, both of you have heard this: is don't ask a patient to do something you haven't done. Uh, If you haven't used the skills, if you haven't self-monitored, don't expect that the patient should use those skills. Um, I think that's a a part of integrity is uh, these skills um, aren't just for patients, they're for all of us. A third thing that I have learned is sequence really matters. Um, The most complicated thing we teach patients is to breathe diaphragmatically. Trying to teach a person to breathe diaphragmatically in the first session, I think is it's doable. It just makes it harder. And so we put the diaphragmatic breathing training in our second session after a person has been practicing relaxation skills uh, in a, a posturally relaxed position where they're reclined and uh, to teach diaphragmatic breathing after two weeks of relaxation practice is way easier. Uh, When we teach the diaphragmatic breathing, um, one of the things that we do that is very different than most all of the breathing techniques that you will find out there is we use a three-step breathing process. Uh, I call it the three R's of breathing. Uh, where uh, the the first step is the, the, the rise of the stomach as air comes in. The second step is the release. You just let go. There's no control of the air going out. It's just a release. When all the air is out, you just let yourself rest. So it's rise, release, and rest. Rest for three to four seconds, whatever's comfortable and then let the stomach rise, and uh, that diaphragm is contracting. It's enabling the negative pressure to come into the lungs. That draws the air in. And once the air is in, you release again, and then you just rest. Uh, We actually published a paper uh, in the journal Psychophysiology demonstrating that this three-step process, rise, release, and rest, is more effective for increasing your heart rate variability than uh, breathing at the same rate, which was six breaths per minute, but you control the release so your release is the same length as your uh, inhalation, which is the standard strategy for breathing. Um, We think there's a better way to do it, and that is using a three-step process.
0: Are there any contraindications for PSR? Are there any patients that maybe PSR is not indicated for?
2: Um, Remember our foundational rule. You don't do anything that increases discomfort or pain. Uh, If, if For whatever reason, a patient would feel uncomfortable with any aspect of the PSR. um, It would need to be modified or discontinued. there are also some medical conditions that one needs to be careful of. And, and actually I think it's very important that there's per, uh physician permission um, because if there are underlying uh, metabolic disturbances, some of these skills can, um, you, know, you know, have an effect that um, you hadn't intended. One example is the person who has diabetes um, and a, uh, when you teach the diaphragmatic breathing skill, uh, that can affect the entitled CO2 level, which has an influence on your pH level in the blood. And uh, there are some instances where uh, changing your breathing pattern could actually result in um, symptoms that you hadn't expected emerging. Another example would be people who have idiopathic seizure disorders that you know are layered on top of the pain conditions. Um, any situation, you know, it's people that have had a cervical injury. Uh, we have patients. Uh, what uh, about 35% of our patients report having had cervical injuries of one sort or another? And if you've had a cervical injury that results in a problem with moving your head. You certainly wouldn't want to intensify that problem by deliberately asking the person to do some flexion extension exercises of the head. And the same would be true for lifting the arms um, or reclining. I had those patients that, uh, because of some kind of uh, either physical event or emotional event, it's very difficult to recline. Um, uh, in, in our relaxation, Uh, protocol. We have people uh, gently close their eyes and keep their eyelids smooth. Um, There are patients who have had histories uh, uh, where if they close their eyes, they uh, become afraid because they're concerned they might be uh, assaulted in some way or form. And those patients uh, can have real difficulty learning the skills. So yes, uh, this isn't something that you just enter into with 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 every patient Um, it requires uh the 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 highest of confidence when it comes to doing the initial evaluation to ensure that there aren't any issues that um um, might create problems for a person learning the skills one small example is surprising number of people have had uh, situations where they they've lost their airways Um, There might be a near-drowning experience. surprising the number of people that have had near-drowning experiences where they've lost their airways. And when when you've had that kind of experience in your history, it makes it real challenging to deliberately alter how you breathe. And it can create some significant anxiety in some instances if it's not managed well and people are prepared to deal with it. Um, the other thing is uh, people that have had uh, panic attacks um, and if uh, those panic attacks are not well understood and the provider has not taken the time to talk with the patient about you know, some of the underlying pieces associated with panic, um, you know, doing a breeding strategy uh, without uh, informed skill uh, could, could precipitate a panic experience. Fortunately, in the years that I've been practicing, um, knock on wood, uh, that has not uh, been an event that we've had to deal with. But we're always cautious um, to make sure that we uh, do our best to screen folks and to make sure that uh, we will not be um, encountering problems that we can't manage effectively.
1: So I'm hoping that you might be able to talk a little bit about the concept of motivational interviewing and maybe give us a sense for what motivational interviewing is and how that might relate to something like PSR skills training and how some motivational interviewing principles could be useful for a a non-psychologist, maybe an OFP practitioner doing a, a comprehensive pain history and evaluation.
2: One of the great things about being involved in a training program is having students come in and ask you questions. And, um, I took on a postdoctoral fellow who came in and, uh, as I was introducing her to the PSR training and we were talking about challenges to learning the skills. Uh, She said, so, Charlie, do you know about motivational interviewing? And I said, no. And she said, well, motivational interviewing was developed in the context of um, working with alcoholism. And Dr. William Miller is a psychologist uh, who developed motivational interviewing strategies, Uh, spent his career... On helping people learn how to manage the lure of alcohol. And one of the things that he focused on was helping figure out ways of working with patients that could mobilize their own desires to change. And he called this whole approach motivational interviewing. Preparing people through an interview To be interested in uh, learning new skills and following through with the necessary training and application of those skills. So that's what motivational interviewing is. It's a set of strategies that clinicians can bring to the table and use with patients in their initial encounters with them, or really any encounter, and help mobilize the patient's desire to change. And one of the most powerful strategies is asking people to talk about advantages for changing and how likely they are to try on new skills. And and Dr. Miller talks about a simple question to get at the heart of that. He encourages people, once you have taught a skill, to ask the question, so what's the probability on a scale of zero to 100? Zero is there's no chance in the world. 100 is, I'll guarantee you, I'll do it. He said, what's the probability that tomorrow you'll practice this skill? And uh, Dr. Miller said, The the, the key to this is helping a patient talk about their capacity. So he said, you can help the patient talk about this capacity by taking the number they give you. Let's say they give you the number 60. What you say to the patient is, why did you say 60 and not 50? Now the patient has to talk about why they think they can do it. And that's what Miller talks about, increasing a patient's motivation. Many times, clinicians would like to say, why didn't you say 70 rather than 60? Haven't you been listening to me? And that doesn't work to get people to think about change. You always ask them, why why a higher number and not a lower number? Why did you say 60? Why did you say 40? rather than 30. Why did you say 10 rather than zero? You want to get people to engage in change talk. And it's that change talk that then helps a person put into practice uh, what they've been introduced to. Now, there's a lot more to motivational interviewing. Bill Miller and his colleague uh, wrote a book with that title. And if you're interested, Uh, I would strongly urge that you uh, get a hold of uh, Miller's book on motivational interviewing and uh, uh, learn about how uh, he introduces patients to these concepts. There are also some continuing education courses that can be very, very helpful. You know, I would think that this would be an area for dentists to really exploit because a lot of what dentists do, whether you're in an oral facial pain practice or in a general practice or in a, in a specific uh, area, um, patients are all the time being asked to do things, to, to change their behavior and to have tools that research has demonstrated are effective, it seems to me would be a good thing for the profession.
1: Well, I, I have just one more question for you, Dr. Carlson, and thanks for being so generous with your time with us today. But I, I, one thing I know about you is that in addition to being a, an academic psychologist, you are also a farmer. That You That's have a correct. beautiful farm in the Kentucky countryside where you work with plants as well as animals. And, and I was curious to know, if your, your work with animals, caring for them and observing their behavior, uh, through that experience, have you gained any any insights or had any thoughts about human behavior, human change, and maybe even pain patients? What, what can being a farmer and working in animal husbandry teach us about orofacial pain?
2: Well, let me give you an example that happened on Saturday. Uh, we had a horse tied up to, uh, our fence. Um, and, uh, the horse had, uh, been tied up with the expectation that the horse was going to be ridden on the next round of rides. And my wife and a friend, uh, took two horses and went out into the pasture, uh, for just a short walk. And, uh the horse that was tied up to the fence just started going berserk, stomping around snorting jumping kicking and i was in the garden uh planting corn uh just about 50 feet away from this horse and um this horse was really um starting to be out of control and my wife was nowhere around, and the horse was just going ballistic. And it was real easy to blame the horse for doing all this. That, ah, this, this horse, what's going on? Well, the horse was doing what's, what a horse does. And the, the horse likes to be uh, with its buddies. A horse is most comfortable when it has its friends around, and its friends were gone. And the horse was in a in a location where it was tied up so that visually he couldn't see the other horses, and he just was doing what horses do when they get nervous: they jump, they stomp, they try to run. You know, when a horse is frightened, it'll either jump or it'll run. Um, you know, that's what it's trained to do, and There I was, uh, you know, watching this animal, and I could have just gotten real upset and angry, or I could help the horse. And I helped the horse by walking into the barn, getting some food, and walking out to the horse, talking to the horse first, then stroking the horse, and then giving it food and just calming it down. as a farmer working with animals, I've sort of adopted a little phrase that that animals are never wrong. They're just doing what they're trained to do. Um their, their 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 genetics, their physiology, their their the size of their brain. You know, horses have a brain the size of a walnut and most of its limbic system. They don't think, they just act. Um, has given me an appreciation that every person I've ever worked with has a learning history. Things have happened to them. They have a way of approaching life. They have unique physiologies that are genetically influenced or, or epigenetically influenced. And a person's history, a person's physiology is not wrong. It's just the way they are. And our job as providers is to understand and work with what we're given. And to maintain a problem-solving focus as we work with those patients. Now, I'm not here to tell you that I get it right all the time. You know, there was a part of me that was actually, when this horse was going crazy, was quite nervous. In fact, I was scared. Because horses have big hooves, and uh, they can inadvertently hurt you when they're excited. And I have been hurt, and so I, I'm cautious. And, and one of the things about horses is they can pick up when you're nervous. Um, so it, it can be a challenge. But the key is you, you, you appreciate the fact that learning histories matter. And you work with those histories rather than trying um, to, uh, to, to deliberately change them or worse, to ignore them. And that's where the other major piece that keeps me in farming comes into play. Because if you work hard and you do things right and the weather cooperates, uh, you can reap some great harvests. Uh, and it works with patients. If you, if you understand the patient's presenting complaints, if you, if you work with the patient, you don't react to um, you know, their strong emotions. Uh, if you are faithful to do what you have said you're going to do um, and you uh, uh, understand what they're experiencing, Uh, there can be major behavior change that results in the management of their pain condition. And it's like biting into the the biggest, plumpest, juiciest, sweetest blackberry you could imagine. It is so satisfying to help a patient manage their pain condition in a way that they never thought possible. Um, To me, that's kept me going because um, you know, patients oftentimes think that there's, there's no hope. But um, I found that um, quite often, uh, to everyone's surprise, uh, you can mobilize hope because you can actually change the underlying disturbed physiology. And when that disturbed physiology gets changed, um, it, it, uh, the, the the pain experience itself can
0: change. Well, thank you both. This has been really really fun. I appreciate you both taking time to to participate in this project of podcast.
1: You are more than welcome. I'm glad to help. This has been fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlson.
0: If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening. The AOP podcasts are now available in iTunes. I want to thank Dr. Elfati Eisa for his technical support.